Good morning, church. Today is going to be such a great day. You know, recently I was having a conversation with another pastor, and he was telling me about a time when he went through a crisis of faith. Yes, even pastors go through crises of faith. And he told me the way he got out of it. He found people within his church that had been through hard times, they'd lived through hard trials, and he asked them, would you just share your testimony with me? Why do you believe in Jesus? And he said, as he heard testimony after testimony of people who had walked through such trials in their life, but yet they still had a strong, firm belief in Jesus and how Jesus had changed their life, that those testimonies are what brought him out of that crisis of faith. And you know, I was thinking about that and I was even riding down the road the other day and I was listening to someone's testimony. They gave a testimony and I was just listening to it. And as I was listening to it, and I heard about how someone was so far from Jesus and how Jesus came and drew near to them and changed their life. Like I just began to cry. I began to weep in my own car. And I just remembered, you know what? There is so much power in testimony. In fact, the Bible says we overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. Now, I love to preach. I preach from the Bible all the time. You know, we walk through the scriptures of the Bible. But every now and again, I think you need to hear testimony. You need to hear about how God has worked in someone's life and changed their life and made them new. And so today's a special day because we have someone in our church who is an amazing man. His name is Roger Helly. He and his wife, Shirley, they've been a part of our church for a few years. They're an amazing couple. And Roger is gonna share his testimony with us today. He uh, oversaw Teen Challenge here from 1994 to 2017 in Chattanooga. He, he left that facility and that program debt-free. He served in the military. Roger was a Marine, and I just have to, I have to read this because I don't want to get it wrong, okay? He has a bronze star medal with a combat V. He has three purple heart medals. He has two personal Vietnamese cross of gallantry medals a good conduct medal, and other service medals. He's highly decorated Marine, amazing man. And what I love about Roger more than anything is he is a man of great honor. He deserves honor today, and he shows honor to everyone he comes in contact with. So church, will you get up on your feet with me today? Come on, will you get up and give Mr. Roger Helly a huge welcome as he comes to share his testimony and everything that the Lord has done in his life. Good morning. It is such an honor to be here with you today, this Sunday, before Veterans Day, which we're gonna be celebrating this week. We wanna recognize and honor all of our veterans. We have the finest military in America and the freedoms that we have, especially the freedom to worship God any way that we choose that allows us to be here today was paid for by the blood, sweat, and tears of our veterans. And so if you're a veteran today, you served our country, we wanna tell you we love you, we appreciate you, we give honor and respect to you, and pray God's blessings upon you. You know, as I was thinking and praying about sharing with you today, I was thinking back about my past, my childhood, and uh, you know, I know I'm older than probably a lot of you that are watching this, but uh, when I turned 70, 
Uh, I know, I, you had never thought that I was 74 years old, but when I turned 70 a few years ago, uh, I just made an incredible uh, revelation. I realized that now that I was 70, now that I was an adult, now I could look back on my past from an adult perspective and realize that all those things that happened to me growing up and when I was a kid, and a teen, all those things, looking back now from an adult perspective, I realized that they didn't really affect me all that much. Now, I, I grew up, I thought I grew up in a no, normal home. Uh, both of my parents were alcoholics. And when I was four years old, my dad walked out on my mom and left her with three little kids. I'm an identical twin. I have an identical twin brother. We were four years old. My baby brother was four months old. And my dad walked out and left my mom with these three little kids. Well, this is a long time ago. And, you know, there was not welfare. There was not food stamps. They didn't have the, the support, the social net we have today. And so a few days after my dad left and uh, you know, I was only four years old, but uh, we were playing in the living room, and my brother and I were playing on the living room floor, and uh, I was a cute little kid. And uh, while we played on the living room floor, my mom went in the back bedroom, packed a couple bags, went in the nursery, got my little brother out of the crib, and while we were playing, she walked out the door and left us. Well, the neighbors were used to my parents leaving us when they'd go out drinking, but that night when nobody came home, they called the state, and the state came and took my brother and I and placed us in an orphanage. And now I'm an adult, I can look back and reflect, and I realize that that didn't affect me all that much. Now I didn't like the orphanage, I don't remember a lot about the orphanage, but uh, six months later, my grandparents got us out of the orphanage, they got custody of us, and at four years old, we got to go live with grandma and grandpa. And let me tell you some sports fans, when you're only four years old, there is nothing neater than living with grandma and grandpa until you become grandma and grandpa. But anyway, so we got out, we were living with my grandparents. They were fun. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't, you know how grandparents are with little kids. And so about six months later, Two years after my mom left, we came home from school one afternoon, walked in the kitchen, and they're having coffee with my grandmother as my mom. Been gone for two years, and, and kind of like a Twilight Zone moment, go off for bread and come back two years later. But hey, I, you know, we're six years old, and I'm glad to see my mom. And shortly after my mom came back, she met a guy. They dated a couple of times, got married. Now I had a mom and a dad, and that was cool. I think that's why God does it that way. But so uh, now we did have um, some interesting things, some new dynamics in our home. You see, my mom had kids, my stepdad had kids, then they started having kids together. So we had like his kids, her kids, our kids, and uh, you know, that, that wasn't always real fun, but you know, it was, it was not, not bad. I didn't affect me all that much. And, and uh, of course, maybe because uh, I was a kid, I never understood why my mom didn't like my stepdad's ex-wife. And, uh, you know, when she'd come to pick up her kids uh, for the weekend, you know, she was always real nice to me. And, and, uh, and I didn't know why my mom didn't like her very much and, or why my mom didn't like my stepsister very much and, uh, or why my mom didn't like hardly anybody very much. But anyway, that's uh, looking back, you know, I uh, realized that all those things didn't affect me all that much. And, and uh, you know, there was, uh, uh, there was one thing, one thing that well, I, I think it may have affected me a little bit. Now, I mentioned that I'm an identical twin. 
Uh, sometimes you may have seen my brother here a couple times with me, but you, you know, people get us mixed up all the time. But when we were young, people got us mixed up all the time. You know, we used to joke about the, the only person that could tell us apart was God and my mom when she hadn't been drinking. And so I remember I was about six years old. It was after my mom and stepdad got married. I was going through the kitchen one night. Now my dad, my stepdad was a workaholic. You know, he worked, he'd get up in the morning, he'd be gone, he worked in a factory. Uh, he was already gone when we got up to have breakfast in the morning. He would come home after work in the evening. We, he'd have a quick bite to eat and went out and worked another job. And uh, so I grew up with a dad that I never really knew. And so uh, one night, I, I was about six years old, I was going to bed and my mom wouldn't start drinking until my dad go to work at night. And so I was walking through the kitchen one night and my mother looked up to me from the table and said, you know something, Roger? You're never going to amount to anything. You're going to be a bum just like your real dad. I was like, wow. I mean, I'm six years old. But apparently I was a pretty mature six years old because I realized, you know, she didn't really mean that. I mean, how could anybody not like me? And, uh, and, and I realized it was, you know, just that was the, the alcohol and my mother's whole side of the family, there was, there was so much drinking and fighting and, and all this stuff, all that drama going on. And I, I knew she didn't really mean it. But, uh, you know, um, but I heard that over and over and over again, week after week after month after year until I graduated from high school. But thank God I'm an adult now. I can look back and realize that that didn't affect me all that much either. And so basically, I was just another well-adjusted American young person. And uh, now this is, this is embarrassing to say this. I was not a very good student in school. Uh, I made it through high school by Grace. Uh, Grace Agnew, that was our principal. And she wanted me out of there just as soon as she could. But uh, my brother was really, I mean, he was a good student. He studied, he did... Uh, all the things that I didn't do. And so he was really good. Right before graduation, 1965, we were downtown Toledo, Ohio, where I grew up in the interstate. We were downtown one day. And, uh, and I remember looking at my brother and I said, Ron, let's join the Marine Corps. And he looks at me and remember, he was the smartest of the two of us. And he goes, okay. And so we go to the Marine Corps recruiting office, walk in the door, my favorite posters hanging on the wall. There's a picture of a good-looking young Marine dressed blue uniform, and, and above it is said, the Marines are looking for a few good men. We went in anyway, and you know, went from high school graduation to Marine Corps boot camp. Let me tell you something, sports fans, that is a wake-up call to your system. But you know, I, I realized that when I joined the Marine Corps, I decided that I was going to be the best Marine that I could possibly be. I was going to show, and I didn't realize for a long time, I was going to show my mom that I was going to make something in my life. I was going to prove her wrong. Well, every Marine after boot camp goes through infantry training. And so during the, as I neared the end of infantry training, Vietnam was just getting started, so I volunteered to go to Vietnam because that's what Marines do. They go to war. And so uh, we shipped out late 1965, and I arrived in Vietnam, barely 18 years old, and 
uh, I knew the war was going to be over quickly because the Marines had landed. And I had seen John Wayne in the sands of Iwo Jima three times. So I knew what combat was all about. You know, it's kind of like when you get married. Now, don't, don't get ahead of me there. What I mean by that is that when you get married, you think you know what you're doing. But that's another story. We'll let Pastor deal with that. You know, I, you know, I, I just wanted to, I, I was going to be the best Marine that I possibly could be. And so I, and I thought that we were well prepared for Vietnam. We had had all the training and Vietnam was a different kind of war. It was guerrilla warfare where the strategy of the enemy is to wait to let you uh, find him when he wants you to. And so uh, my first combat operation that we were on in Vietnam, my company of 219 Marines walked in to a 650-man Viet Cong ambush. They caught us in an open field and opened fire. When they opened fire, my platoon sergeant, a Korean veteran, standing about on my left, about five feet away from me, took a bullet in the head, nearly taking the whole top of his head off. My best friend Danny was standing on my right, a 51 caliber machine gun around, hit him in the chest, killing him instantly. And I remember throwing myself to the ground and my, my mind was like reeling. Everything was like in slow motion as I fell to the ground and all around me there were cries for corpsmen and people were, were being wounded and killed and the, the volume of gunfire, you could not hear anything. And after laying out in that, that open field for a, a few minutes, the company commander gave the command to assault the tree line. And I knew I was never going to make it to that tree line. I knew that I, I would, would be hit just like everybody that was falling around me. But somehow I made it to the tree line. When the battle was over, after just 45 minutes, my company of 219 Marines was reduced to 78 men that had not been killed or wounded. I, I was 18 years old. I had never seen anybody die before. And then suddenly now I'm surrounded by death and, uh, and men who had been horribly wounded all around me. You know, that night when I went back, when I went back to our barracks or to our tent, my mind I, my, was just going. I could not sleep. I could not, th all I could think about is what I had seen. But you know, you have to go on. I volunteered for a pacification program where the Marine Corps had a squad of Marines and a Navy corpsman. We would live in villages outside the bases. See, Vietnam was guerrilla warfare, and so we developed a strategy to take guerrilla warfare to the enemy's backyard. We would move into their villages. We would teach the local militia uh, tactics, ambush tactics, how to, sh how to fire their weapons and, and how to conduct patrols. And so we were living in the villages. A couple months later, we were going on a patrol one night and it was just our squad of Marines. And I had been walking point for several months. And that night, our new squad leader, instead of letting me walk point, put me at the back of the patrol. And so that night, as we came into this fishing village south of the old Imperial City of Way, as we were coming down this trail, uh, with rice patties on both sides, just something all of a sudden, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I mean, something was terribly wrong. And, and, uh, and, and before I could even shout, the enemy opened fire all around us. 
and the volume of gunfire, the first 10 men in front of me were killed. The point man was shot 27 different times. And there was an explosion behind me that lifted me and the two Marines behind me off the rice paddy and blew us out off the trail into the rice paddy. And I remember laying there in the water, my days from the concussion, laying there looking up and then and, and, and almost eerily out of the jungle, these Viet Cong soldiers just appeared on the trail. And they began taking the equipment off of the, the, the Marines that were dead, shooting anybody that was still alive in, in, um, with a minute, two minutes. They just disappeared back into the jungle. As I lay there trying to gather my senses, I heard moaning be, uh, behind me. And the two men behind me had taken the brunt of the explosion. And they were laying in the rice paddy and moaning. And I got them up against the trail and I was able to find the radio, call our rear headquarters and ask for an immediate uh, uh, reinforcements. And I remember laying there and when the helicopter landed and they came and they took the two wounded men away and put them on a helicopter. Then they gathered the 10 dead Marines and, and one Navy corpsman put them on the helicopter and put me on the helicopter with it and took us back to the rear. You know, for 23 years, I would carry the guilt of surviving that night for 23 years. I did two tours back to back in Vietnam. And, you know, we used to joke about that day that we go home when we get on the Freedom Bird, that was the airplane. And we'd come back to the land of the big PX. Uh, that's what that's that's what the military had. We didn't have WalMarts, and so we, you know, we would joke about that time. And yet, I knew that that day wasn't going to come because all around me, men were dying, and I knew that that day would never come. And one time, uh, we were on a fire base on the DMZ. The enemy hit us in the middle of the night, and throughout the night, we we fought off human wave attacks. Uh, as they tried to overrun our little fire base. And at times the, hand, the fighting was hand-to-hand -hand within that little fire base. And finally, just before dawn, the enemy withdrew and all through the perimeter of that little fire base were dead Marines and North Vietnamese soldiers. When dawn came, some helicopters landed from our division headquarters. Some officers got out and uh, they were getting a, a battlefield update on what happened. And I heard somebody call my name and uh, they said, get on that helicopter over there. So I got on that helicopter. They took me back to the rear, got my gear, took me to Da Nang and put me on a plane uh, to Okinawa. And then from Okinawa, I was home. 48 hours after literally fighting for my life, hand-to-hand -hand combat, I'm back home in my home. And I'm safe. And I'm with the people that I love and care about. And you see, the thing about Vietnam is that when you lost people that you cared about, when your buddies were killed or, or critically wounded, you know, there's you, the grief, the pain, the anger, all these things that, these emotions that you had, you could not express them because if you were emotional, you could get yourself or somebody else killed. And so you pressed them down inside. And when I came home from Vietnam, I had these 
emotions I, that I just wanted to talk about. I just wanted to get it off my chest. I just wanted to, uh, you, you know, just, just say how I felt. But, you know, 1967, Vietnam was the first war that came into our living rooms every single night. And America watched in our living rooms, but what we saw was a distorted picture of what was happening. No war is good. Ask those that had to fight in it. No war is good. But what we saw was a distorted picture. And two years after I enlisted, when I came home, much of America was embarrassed by the war in Vietnam. And so that meant they were embarrassed at us. And my mom said, look, honey, I'm glad you're home. I'm glad you're okay. Uh, you know, but this Vietnam thing, it's, it's, it's a little awkward. So look, let's just do this. Let's not talk about it. Let's just pretend like it didn't happen and, and, and get on with our life. Well, you know, getting on with my life sounded good. I was so grateful to be alive. But forgetting about it, that, that was something else. Because you see, when I would go to bed at night and I would close my eyes, I would remember all over again. Well, after three years in the States, I volunteered to go back to Vietnam. And uh, I didn't realize why. There was, but there was one reason that was very clear. And that was by 1970, America had changed radically. And people, there were, there were people small in numbers, but given great visibility, they weren't just embarrassed by the war in Vietnam. They were outright angry about it. And I got to the place where I was getting angry when people would come up to me when I had my uniform on and call, screaming names at me, calling me murderer and baby killer when I knew I had not done anything wrong. And you know, this didn't feel like my country anymore. We have to be careful about feelings. Feelings will lie to us. And the majority of people in America supported us, but we didn't know that. And so that, that one was, was real obvious. The other one was, took much longer to figure it out. And that was because inside, I felt guilty that I had come home when men better than me had not come home at all. And so I volunteered to go back to Vietnam. Shortly after, just several months after I got back, I was a platoon leader. I was leading my platoon on a, uh, on a mission in Vietnam when I was critically wounded. I had a grenade go off at my feet. Uh, I was shot twice when I tried to get up. I was run through with a bayonet in my stomach. This was like a nightmare. This can't be happening. My mind was just, could hardly comprehend what was taking place around me. I thought, I'm having a nightmare and I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be back in my barracks. Better yet, maybe I'll be back home. But the nightmare just continued to, to, to go. And so I remember getting to my feet and trying to move in a direction of my platoon. And I remember taking a few steps and falling and struggling to my feet again and taking another couple steps. And finally, I fell to the ground. I, I couldn't get up. And I remember rolling over on my back and I was looking up into a beautiful clear blue sky. sky. Vietnam is a beautiful country. And I remember looking up at this clear blue sky and the palm trees uh, and, and over uh, the wind rippling the stalks of a freshly planted rice paddy. And as I lay there with all this 
seeming beauty around me, all of a sudden pain, like I had never experienced in my life, was racking my body. And I remember laying there on the ground and just closing my eyes and just wanting it to be over, just, just to have it done. The, the, the killing, the, the everything, I just wanted it over. And then all of a sudden, I was being dragged across the field. My Navy corpsman, 21-year-old Navy corpsman and a 19-year-old Lance Corporal ran out of, under exposing themselves to enemy fire to pull me to safety. I remember the corpsman trying to stop the bleeding and, and, and stop the burning from phosphorus on my arm and, and my guys th throwing their combat dressings at, at the corpsman as they were trying to stop all the bleeding. There were no medevac flights available, so a helicopter, a marine supply chopper, landed in a dry rice paddy, and I remember them carrying me out and putting me in the middle of this empty uh, helicopter as it lifted off the ground. Fifteen minutes later, I was in Da Nang at the 95th Evac Hospital in Da Nang, and they rushed me into the triage. And as they're treating me and the smells, the sights, the sounds, I'll never forget for the rest of my life, the smell of blood, the smell of charred flesh. I was not the only casualty there. And then I remember a doctor leaning over me and as he put a mask on my face, he said, son, we're gonna take you down to surgery. I remember being in and out of consciousness over the next, what I would learn later was six days. But there was one day that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. Six days later, I was laying in intensive care and I had been in a coma, I'd been in and out of consciousness, my face, was all black and blue, that my head was the size of a basketball, my body was ripped apart, I was open wounds and laying in this bed, and I saw my twin brother walk past my bed. And I, I, I could see him out of the corner of my eye, stop at a doctor, and he said, excuse me, he said, I'm Sergeant Helley's brother, uh, could you tell me how he's doing? And the doctor looked up from the chart he was looking at, put the chart down, looked at my brother, said, son, your brother's gonna die. There's not anything else that we can do. And he stood there for a moment looking at the doctor. He said, well, can I see him? He said, they, they told me that he was in this ward, but I can't find him. He had walked right past me. And I saw, again, the doctor took my brother by the arm and a nurse came up on the other side of the other arm, took him and led him back to the end of my bed and just stopped. And, and I, I, I could see my brother's face. He just stood there with this, puzzled look on his face as he stood at the end of this bed of this, this human rubble laying there on the bed. And I could literally see the recognition on his face when he recognized that that was me. His face went white. And he stood there for a moment and he began to, to weep. And he took a step toward my bed and his legs gave out from under him. And he buried his face in the, in the end of my bed, clutching the sheets, weeping. I was 22 years old. I was three months from my 23rd birthday and as I lay there on that bed, I, I felt a fear that nothing in my, my tours of combat could compare. I, I, I didn't want to die and I was afraid. And I remember closing my eyes and I remember praying in my heart and saying, God, if there really is a God, if you let me live, I'll do anything you want. And I went back to sleep. Years later, my brother told me that uh, one morning the doctor came in and he said, uh, Ronnie said, uh, your brother is going to live. He's pretty messed up, but he's, but he's turned the corner. And uh, 
It was about another week before they felt I could survive a flight to a better hospital back in the States. But on the plane to Japan, I started hemorrhaging internally. They took me off in Yokushka Naval Hospital, Putman Hospital. I had and, uh, about four weeks, I had eight surgeries in Yokushka. And finally, they put me on a plane, Great Lakes Naval Hospital in Illinois. When they took me off the plane, took me to the receiving room to, to change my bandages, uh, the doctor looked at me and said, son, you got gangrene in your right leg and we're going to have to amputate it. And I remember they weren't asking your opinion then and I, I couldn't, still couldn't talk. And I remember that doctor day and night, he would be by my bedside, he would be working on me. And, and uh, one night, uh, weeks later, I remember waking up at about two in the morning sensing there was somebody standing by my bed and I looked up and the doctor was standing there looking down at me. And when he saw that I was awake, he smiled. He said, hey, son, he said, uh, that gangrene's gone. And he just kind of smiled, shook his head. He said, that kind of gangrene just doesn't go away. And he was a Navy doctor and I was a Marine. And I said, doc, Marines are tough. <laughs> Not smart. But uh, then I had a bone infection. A bullet had shattered my right elbow and shattered my, and then it was broken a couple places. They found a bone infection. They were going to amputate my arm, but when they got ready to amputate it, the bone infection was gone. Then they began to say, okay, now you're going to be here about two years, maybe more, because you're going to have to have surgery, therapy, recovery, more surgery, therapy, recovery. We're going to put pins and plates uh, in your legs. You're going to have leg braces. You're going to have about 15% use of your right arm. You have shrapnel in your eyes. It's going to cause you to go blind. You have some other injuries. Then uh, you won't be able to have any children. And so kind of on and on, uh, they went to uh, encourage me. But you know, nine months later, I walked out of that hospital. And as a Marine, I thought, I did it. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. I thought that I had did it. And I got out of the hospital in 1971. And when I, when I got out of the hospital, I got a job as a criminal investigator. And I discovered that I could put on nice clothes and I could cover up a lot of scars. And most people looking at me could not tell that I had been wounded. 28 operations, four plastic surgery operations later. But you know, uh, I got a job as a criminal investigator. A few months later, I met my wife, convinced her I was normal. We got married and I started my career as a criminal investigator, but there was a time of day that I hated. And it was a time of day when there were no more cases to solve it was a time of day when the bars closed and there was no place to go for fellowship. It was a time of day when I finally had to go home. And when I went home, eventually, I'd have to go to bed. And when I go to bed, sooner or later, I'd have to go to sleep. And when I go to sleep, I'd be standing in a field and there's a grenade laying at my feet. And I try to run, I try to turn, I try to lean over and pick it up, I try to kick it, and it's like something is holding me, and I can't move, and, and I'm fighting, and I'm fighting, and finally the grenade goes off, and I wake up soaking wet and sweat. And, and if I could go to sleep again, I'd see my best friend Danny laying on the ground with lifeless eyes open, with his mouth open, and, or see someone on the trail in front of me step on a mine and their body disappear in front of my eyes. I, I relived that every single night for four and a half years. But God's grace 
had never given up on me. We, we started going to a traditional church. My stepdad used to take us to a traditional church when, when my, he and my mom got married. I, after Vietnam, I didn't go to church, but we ended up in a church. And there was something about these people that was totally different than any, any church that I'd been in before. They loved us. They accepted us. And, and, and so we started going to the church. We started, they asked us to join a couple's Bible study, like the connect groups we have here. And so we were, we were in, a, in a couple's Bible study, nine couples. The first night, they're going around the room and they, they have these icebreaker questions. You know what those are. Those are the questions that try to make you feel comfortable when you already know you're not comfortable with those kind of people. And so uh, they're going around the room and they're asking questions. You know, what was the warmest place to your house? And, and, uh, you know, and then they asked the last question. They said, when was God real in your life? Now, these are nice religious people, I thought. And so I thought, well, I, you know, I was trying to think of something that sounded religious, but there was not much to draw from in my life. And uh, as I'm sitting there and they're getting around the room and they're getting, all of a sudden, something happened that had never, ever happened before in my life. It's like I was picked up out of that room and I was looking down in another room. And there was a man laying on a bed all bloody and bleeding. And I heard him say, God, if you let me live, I'll do anything you want. And I went back to sleep. That night, the, the nightmares of Vietnam, I prayed. We went to my wife's apartment. We were separated. I went to my wife's apartment and we knelt by her bed and I just cried out from a broken heart. Scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. From a broken heart, I cried out and I said, God, what's missing? And the Bible calls it that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit that spoke to our hearts and said, Roger, surely it's not what's missing, it's who's missing. You need Jesus and I probably didn't do it right. I probably didn't pray. You know, in our, in our denomination, we didn't, you know, the only person who prayed was the pastor. And if anybody said amen, they would have scared him half to death. And I, I probably didn't do this right. But I remember just as we knelt there, I just cried out and said, God, if you can use somebody like me, here I am. And you know, for, for four and a half years, every day when I got up, I felt like I was putting on a pack of 100 pounds of emotional combat gear that I drug around every single day. And when I said that prayer from a broken heart, the, the burden, that weight fell away and a peace like I have never experienced flooded my soul. And that night, for the first time in four and a half years, the nightmares of Vietnam stopped forever. And 20 trips back to Vietnam. I've not had a nightmare of Vietnam or anything else. You know, years later, I would discover that my grandmother, who was a, uh, my real dad's mother, was an alcoholic. When we joined the Marine Corps, she got radically saved and she began to pray, Father in heaven, let me live long enough to see my grandson serving Jesus Christ. And that happened. God changed our life. It was not easy. It did not, it, while the nightmare stopped, while the, 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 the grief and everything of Vietnam stopped overnight, I still had a lot of 
baggage that I had to unpack. But with the help of believers, with the help of people in the church, we began to unpack that. We began to grow. We began to seek God. We started working with kids off of the street, wounded kids just like me. And that led into our starting Teen Challenge programs in Nebraska and Iowa. 27 years ago, God brought us to Chattanooga to be the executive director here. 40 years, my wife and I labored in Teen Challenge and, and with broken, wounded people just like us. You know, today, I want to talk to you because those who are watching there are some of you that are wounded. And some of you are just as wounded inside as I was wounded outside. And you've tried to put it down. You've pressed it down. You've tried to ignore it. You've tried to cover it up. You've tried to do good deeds. You've tried all kinds of ways to make that. And you don't have to go to Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, although we have those in our midst too who have been wounded by war. But there's some of you that have been wounded by life. Our culture is geared to wound people and you've been wounded by, by the things and sometimes it's the things that people did. There's some of you ladies who you've been abused, you've been maybe raped, molested, rejected, ignored. And, and you have your own wounds, your own nightmares. There's some guys that you're watching this and you've spent your whole life trying to achieve, trying to, to prove that you're going to make something of your life and yet nothing, no matter how much wealth you accumulate, how many things you get, how much, how much accolades you get, it's never good enough. And you're wounded. And you say, well, Raj, how do I, how do I know I'm wounded? Because the memory of what somebody did or did not do has left you wounded. I'm here to tell you today that there's a God in heaven who loves you and me so much that he sent his son to die so that we would not have to bear the pains of, of what we did ourselves, the sins that we did, that, that we committed, that have forged chains of bondage in our life and, 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 or the uh, abuse and impact of what other people did to us. There's a God in heaven who wants to set you free this morning. And some of you are looking at, at, the, at this program and you're, you're, you're thinking, you don't know what I did. You don't know how bad that I was. And, and uh, you, you, know, you think that you're beyond forgiveness. But let me tell you, there's nothing that you could have done that God cannot, will not, and wants to forgive. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, there's some of you that, that you can't look in the mirror and say, hey, hi, I like you. And you might say, well, yeah, after all those operations, you can say that. No, let me tell you something. For four and a half years, when I would get up in the morning, when I would look in the mirror to shave, I didn't see what the plastic surgeons had done. I still saw the, the me, the phony. I still saw the wounds. I still felt the pain. But Jesus Christ came into an infected heart. He came into a wounded heart and he took away all the bitterness. He took away all the pain. He took away all the memories of my past. And by his Holy Spirit, he cleansed those wounds and then he bound those wounds up and he allowed them to heal. And today, 
You know, the only reason I can tell this story today is because over 40 years ago, Jesus Christ came into that infected heart and he bound it up and began to heal it. That's the only reason I can tell this story today. There's some of you that are still wounded and I'm telling you that God is here today. Jesus is here to heal the brokenhearted, to heal the wounded. And I want you to pray with me this prayer. And it's not the prayer that I'm going to pray with you. It is your response from your woundedness, your broken heart. If you're tired of, of, of being wounded, if you're tired of having all these pains, of having your own nightmares every single night, I'm here to tell you that there's hope for you today. So bow your head and pray this prayer with me right where you're at. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord God, that you love us. And I thank you, Father, for all the wounded people right now, Lord, that are listening to my voice. And I pray, Father, that right now they have hope for what you did in my life, you will do in theirs. And so, Lord, for every wounded person that's listening to my voice, Father, that, that they come to the place of simple surrender and that we simply say, Father, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I can't do this on my own. Lord, I ask you to forgive my sins heal my wounded heart, bind up my wounds, and Lord, allow the scars to heal. And Lord, I thank you for my new life in Jesus Christ. Amen. As we close real quickly, I just want to tell you now, some of you, you're going to have a real battle now that if you prayed that prayer, because the enemy's going to come right to you and say, nothing happened. You know, when the doctor took my brother aside and said, Ron, your brother's going to live, if he would have come to my bed, looked down at me as I lay there and said, Raj, how do you feel today? I still felt like I was going to die. But I had turned the corner. And so you need to remember when the devil comes and tells you, you haven't changed. You know, God did not do anything. He is a liar. He is the father of all lies. Jesus loves you and he wants you to grow in his love and grace. And I pray God's richest blessings upon you. God bless you. Amen. Hey, I hope that message today brought you such hope and encouragement. And we are heading into the Christmas season. And every year we give a special offering. And that is coming up November 21st. We are having the Share Hope Offering. And there's always three lanes that we like to give in and share hope. The first one is here within our own church. We like to help people and take care of their needs during this Christmas season within our own church. The second is something local. We like to give to local organizations. And one of the things we're doing locally this year is there is a, a member of our church who works in the foster care system and uh, they are going to help us this year bring and share hope to some foster kids in the Chattanooga area. Her particular organization has 65 children in the Chattanooga area. And you know what? We're gonna share hope with these children this year. We're gonna be able to make Christmas extra special for them and we're gonna let them know Jesus loves them and that the Crossing Church loves them. So that's gonna be awesome. That's locally and then globally, uh, what we're gonna give to this year is Dream Central Africa. Uh, this building has 
come alive. Uh, I was actually with Pastor Isaac Aburi this week. He says, Dream Central at night, when it's lit up, it looks like a, a little city. And it's a training facility. It's a facility where people come to hear uh, the good news of Jesus. Pastors are trained. Children come and they are blessed. And it, it is so close to having everything they need. But here's what they need now. They need two water towers on their property and more beds for people to sleep in. So we're going to give towards this. And I believe Dream Central Africa is going to just be a life-changing place for many people. So that is our here in the church, our local in the city, and our global emphasis this year with Share Hope. We're taking this offering up November the 21st. Pray about it. See what the Lord would have you give. And let's share the hope of Jesus with all people.